0: The great way is not difficult for those who do not pick and choose. When preferences are cast aside, the way stands clear and undisguised. But even slight distinctions made set earth and heaven far apart if you would clearly see the truth discard opinion, pro and con. To founder in dislike and like is nothing but the mind's disease. And not to see the way's deep truth disturbs the mind's essential peace. Those words are the start of affirming faith in mind sometimes translated as trust in mind. The Enlightenment poem of a great early Chan teacher, Zen teacher in China. And you know that what he's saying here is not a theory. It's not something he thought up. It's what he realised. What in another way of putting, it became real for him. Um, he's a very early Zen person, um, the third ancestor who went to um, Huike. Um, now, um, but he went to huike who was Bodhidharma's successor at a time when Huike was living in the mountains due to political upheaval. So you've got Bodhidharma, and Bodhidharma's successor, who was Huike. And then you have um Sang, who was the third ancestor. So he was Huike's successor. But at the time when he went to Huike, he was actually a layman. And he went to see him because he was ill, and he asked Huike to absolve him of whatever transgression he had done that has caused his illness. And Fike said, bring me your transgression. Um, This might sound a little bit familiar, because if you remember, some of you, that when Huíke went, when the second ancestor went to Bodhi Dharma, um, Bodhi Dharma said, "Bring me your mind, and I will put it at rest for you." And he said that he couldn't bring him his mind. And he said, "Well, I put it at rest to you. In the, this next um, generation, it's the transgression that he cannot produce, um, that he can't find, and things." Um, Sam couldn't bring his transgression and Hui Ke said, see, I've absolved it. And after that, his illness subsided and he took ordination. But he actually lived very quietly and out of sight as this was a time of great persecution and suppression of Buddhism in China. So he, he lived in the mountains and kept quite quiet. Um, This was a time when Buddhism was sort of relatively new in China. And Taoism, though it was much older, dating from the time of Lao Tzu, its legendary founder who lived 500 years before the Christian era. um, But at that time, Taoism was not codified into a formal religion. And it influenced Buddhism in a way that gave Chan Buddhism, Zen, its distinctive flavor. Um, and this is known by historians as Budo daoism So this early Buddhism, um, following Bodhidharma, um, was influenced by Taoism and um, affirming faith of mind or trust in mind is actually a very valuable document showing what this kind of Buddhism was actually like. Um, And that's why this morning um, I quoted some lines from Stephen Mitchell's translation of the Tao Te Ching because it was this Taoism that was mixing with the Buddhism that had come from India, mixing with the very sort of... um, Radical kind of Taoism that still existed at that time. Um, it was the sort of, um, I think somebody described it as being like, um, the Taoism of that time was like Christianity was at the time of Christ or shortly afterwards when it was just a few you know, a number of followers doing their thing rather than being the Catholic Church, you know, which was a very different sort of institution. And Taoism turned into something quite different. But in these, these times, Zen, um, wandering Zen um, monks and Taoists had a lot in common. They tended to live in the natural world and have a very uh, simple kind of lifestyle. Anyway... This morning, I quoted some lines from Stephen Mitchell's translation of the Tao Te Ching. And I chose particularly to read from Stephen Mitchell because he is somebody who has done uh, years and years of Zen practice. So his translations are somewhat, um, you know, as Taoism influenced Buddhism, I think his translations are slightly um, influenced by his long years of Zen practice with John Tarrant. The Tao or as I rephrased it this morning, the way doesn't take sides. It gives birth to both good and evil. The master doesn't take sides. She welcomes both saints and sinners. The question is, do you? Do you welcome both saints and sinners, or are you unconsciously entangled in relentless picking and choosing? And I'm not talking here about choosing whether to have tea or coffee or whether to have one ladle of rice or two or actually even who to vote for. Um, We make choices and decisions all the time. Or perhaps I should say decisions happen all the time. We have to make choices to function, conscious choices. Um... And of course, you know, I'm not also talking here about choices to help someone up if they fall over, or, you know, you see somebody fall into a swimming pool, you sort of help them out, pull the struggling child out of the swimming pool. You know, that's an instinct, might be instinctive, or it might be a conscious choice to help in the situation as necessary, do what needs to be done. This isn't the sort of choice we're talking about here. We're talking about the Way that our pathway through the world is often guided by desires or aversions that we haven't even noticed. These desires and aversions that protect our our sense of who we are, ourselves. Um, these uh, incredibly real but actually non-existent <laughs> things. These small selves of ours. And our practice is to pay attention, to become aware. Uh, But it's not just about noticing the floor, the sound of the traffic, or the pain in our backs or knees, but the way our perceptions are so often accompanied by judgments. And uh, talking of saints and sinners, how often do we find the saints and sinners battling it out in our own mind? Oh, you don't have to look anywhere else for these, uh, these characters. Oh, I want a piece of cake. Oh, it'll make you fat. One little piece, because I did go to the gym today. Who's going to win the battle? Will we banish the evil tempter? Or will we convince ourselves that it's the resistor who's really the baddie, who's too controlling? What games we can play. Our own minds. We don't even need an enemy to fight. If we don't have one, we can create our own. I'd like to turn now to not knowing. Which is a very promising and intimate state uh, which often naturally arises as we let go of our opinions which essentially are these preferences you know what we like what we don't like Uh, that's our opinions Um, and when we let go of those We can find ourselves in a state of not knowing and it's actually very pleasant to rest easily in not knowing the answers to life's big questions. Where did we come from? What's the meaning of the universe? What happens when we die? I don't know. It's lovely, it's spacious, it's liberating. No one really knows the answer to such questions because they are essentially unknowable. So we don't feel bad if we don't know. But there are other kinds of not knowing that can feel less liberating. I realised today that some of you don't know that I've recently uh, taken on a new job as um, the coordinator of a... Aboriginal language centre a few hundred kilometres north of Sydney. And um, so in that role I'm having to manage a collection of projects um, and I mean I found myself there with all these things I had to do um, and I hadn't had time to read up all the you know files and files and files of documents about them all. And, um, You know, there was one day I had the experience after almost 12 hours at work one day of feeling just totally out of my depth with so much information and just physically tired. Um, You know, being with that, the discomfort, you know, the urge to want to know everything now, you know, I want it now, I haven't got it, it's uncomfortable. Um... And what happens, you know, suddenly a little voice pipes up. Oh, it's all too hard. (laughs) I can't do it. We want to do anything to stop that bad feeling when it arises. Uh, But, you know, to just stop and notice that bad feeling. What's that like? You know, return to the body. The clenching stomach, the tight shoulders, the way our bodies brace themselves against scary thoughts, as if the thoughts were tigers or woolly mammoths we were going to have to fend off. The way to deal with our bad feelings, the ones we're uncomfortable with, fear, anxiety, jealousy, or whatever, isn't to run away or to fight. And indeed, Running away from or trying to fight a tiger or a woolly mammoth isn't a particularly good option either. Um, So, no, just accepting what is. Just noticing is often enough to actually allow the body to relax. Yep, I'm tired. That's all it is. I make a list of the issues so I don't forget and look at them tomorrow. Right now, I need to eat and sleep. This is, you know, when people talk about um, knowing what to do and right action, it's often incredibly simple. It's simple things like realizing that you're hungry or realizing that you're tired or realizing that the cat wants to be let out. You know, I mean, but so often we're caught up in our own thoughts that we don't see what the next step is. And so it's actually really interesting to practice with chaos and difficulty and see what happens. It's much more interesting, really, when it's all falling apart around you because that's when, practice, you can really get your teeth into it. You know, be curious. What's happening here? Um... I know I've mentioned before a researcher I had in my English class in Jakarta who was incredibly baffled when I did a practice job interview situation with him and asked him to recall a time when he'd been faced with a problem and how he resolved it. You know, those job interview practice runs where you're told to show, you know, how you can solve problems by describing a situation where you... Successfully averted disaster. Anyway, you know, I was explaining to him what I wanted him to do, and he just said, I don't have problems, Mary. And what was interesting was that he didn't mean that the world always went his way, which is what we tend to mean. He meant that he didn't define events as problems, things just happen. As he explained, if he tries something and it doesn't work as he'd hoped, he just does it again differently, or whatever's necessary. Or he lets it go, whatever's appropriate. Can we be like that? This may sound quite psychological, but it's really Buddhism 101, and involves no theorising, just saying it as it is greed, hatred and ignorance rise endlessly, I vow to abandon them. We vow to let go of our relentless measuring and judging of everything according to what suits us. It's quite simple too. This is what we practice in formal meditation. Counting or following the breath, we learn to put aside our thoughts as soon as we realize we are wandering down a track down that familiar mind road that we so much like to take. And we return to just this breath. What I mean about theorizing is that, for example, suppose you find yourself feeling angry or worried or whatever, it can then be tempting to go down a track of analysis oh that voice i just heard reminded me of my sister and i felt angry because when she and i were little she was always allowed to play with the whatever you know and we're no longer angry but instead we are writing our own little mystery story sleuthing along in search of a reason and explanation this is not the way it's just another story No, when we abandon greed, hatred, and ignorance, I, liking, disliking, or being indifferent, when we abandon those, abandon picking and choosing preferences, we really just abandon them. We don't turn it into another story to distract ourselves. And there's a story about Hakuin which really illustrates this, perhaps more than any other story, and I'm sure a lot of you will have heard it already, but it's such a good story, it bears repeating. You know, Hakuin had his own, you know, important person in a temple, and one day a girl turns up with mother and father. Mother and father are not happy. Girl is pregnant Girl says that Hackwin is the dad of this baby that she is expecting, and Hackwin says, "Oh, is that so?" And he takes the baby. That's what they've done. They brought. Uh, she wasn't pregnant. Well, she might have been pregnant, but when the baby actually arrived, they took the baby to Hackwin. And Hakuen looked after the baby, having said, "Is that so?" And any of you who have been in Japan will know that you know, "Ah, uh, ah, so means "Is that so?" And it's what people say all the time. I have had conversations in Japan that went for, oh, a good half hour, where all I had to do was, "Ah, so deska," "Ah, ah, so." Ah, so desca, and people think you're understanding, and they will tell stories for hours. It's wonderful. But anyway, it's a very common expression, and so I can just hear Haquin saying, "Ah, so Deska. is that so? Anyway, um, of course, this was not a very good thing for the sort of priest, uh, Zen priest. To it didn't do wonders for his reputation to be seen as the father of an illegitimate child Um, but he looked after the baby and uh, then uh, a year later the young woman reappeared at the temple with her lover who had now become her husband he would scurried off initially when she got pregnant and she was feeling quite contrite and reclaimed the baby to which, how said, Ah, oh, is that so? Oh, so does And it's this mind. It does seem unbelievable, doesn't it? I mean, can you imagine not wanting to go straight to the police and demanding they take a DNA test <coughs> immediately? I mean, when you seriously think about this, would you just say, Oh, is that so, you know? your reputation in tatters, your plans for your career completely in ruins. How strong the urge is to set the record straight and prove it wasn't me who did the dastardly deed. And how early we learn to protect our sense of who we are. And uh, this reminds me of... uh, Oh, a few weeks ago during the summer, um, I took my grandson, well, the whole family, we went to um, a playground where um, there were slide, water slides and things, and um, my grandson was absolutely devastated because he was told off by one of the carnies at the festival, you know, because he he was he'd slid down the slide before he'd been given the nod, whereas, in fact, he'd actually just slipped down the slide. He hadn't deliberately ignored the instruction to stay put. Um, And... But he came down, and then he sort of took off in tears and wouldn't talk to anybody. And it's like, what's going on here? You know, I couldn't understand until his mum told me, you know, although it had been a very mild rebuke, nothing very obvious... um, it was the injustice that had set him off. He really didn't like um, not to be seen as being good and obedient and to have been told off for something which he hadn't done. It was this sense of, you know, his sense of self was uh, challenged by, you know, being, he was actually told off twice because this is, ha- anyway, it had happened a couple of times. But he likes to be good and he likes to be right. And it's extraordinary because this is only an eight-year-old, you know, how quickly um, this self that we want to protect sort of starts to build. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, for others it might be a, a totally different sense of self, one that's always getting into trouble, you know. It, it doesn't matter which sort of um, sense of yourself you have, it's just that you've got to start to have this... Um, But Hakuin, in contrast, had no reaction to the injustice. He just said, is that so? And then made his response, doing what needed to be done, looking after the baby. Our practice changes us, bit by bit. Um, There's a quote from um, Jan Chosen Bayes in the introduction to a book by Mousson about about this poem, Trust in Mind. And um, she talks about the fact that, you know, as our practice matures, um, you know, to begin with, we just trust in the way. And this is what... Um, affirming faith in mind, this practice, this early Buddhist Taoist practice, is like you know. To begin with, we just trust in the way. We know that the way is, that the Tao is, and it's it's what pulls us in somehow. Um, but as our practice matures, this blind faith is replaced by lived experience, and we begin to taste for ourselves the fruit harvested from cultivation of the heart mind and we become more confident this is the second aspect and as we experience the emergence of our own Buddha mind and watch it at work in the world we marvel at its mysterious and mathematically appropriate functioning Um, this is the third aspect and this is something that we really do need to trust that You know if we let go of our preferences things shift and there's no way to to, to sort of describe it Um, you have to do it and you will see for yourselves how things change gradually we relinquish our old habit patterns Less and less do we fall back on strategies developed by the small, self-centred and self-referential mind in reaction to life's inevitable buffeting and wounds. Renouncing the way of the small and fearful mind and allow the one heart mind to begin to carry us and to function through our bodies and minds is the fourth aspect of trust in mind. So there's... You know, there's more to say about this, and that whole poem, I mean, I just read you a few lines. There is actually, it's a wonderful um, enlightenment poem to explore more deeply, and I'd really encourage you to look into it more, but I'm going to leave it there for now, and I'm going to read you finally another um, verse from the Dao De Jing, from Stephen Mitchell's uh, version of the Dao De Jing. Empty your mind of all thoughts, let your heart be at peace, watch the turmoil of beings, but contemplate their return. Each separate being in the universe returns to the common source, returning to the source is serenity. If you don't realise the source, you stumble in confusion and sorrow. When you realise where you come from, you naturally become tolerant, disinterested, amused, kind-hearted as a grandmother, dignified as a king. Immersed in the wonder of the Tao, you can deal with whatever life brings you. And... When death comes, you are ready.